1 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week I wasn't with you, sort of. I was here for the music in the first service. I went down the road and filled in at Mission Dorado Baptist Church. Uh, Their pastor was out of town, and then I made it back for the sermon in the second service. So I caught one whole service, but in two pieces. So Corey preached last week. We talked about Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The week before that, the last time I preached, we looked at Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 39. So we looked at almost 20 verses, and we just sort of flew by. We took it paragraph by paragraph and talked about some of the big ideas. This morning, we're going to do something very different. Earlier, we read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. If you were in Sunday school, adult Sunday school down the hall, we sort of looked at some of these verses. We talked about verse 3 and we talked about verse 4. What we're going to do this morning is talk about verse 2. One single verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. So I want to start off just talking about Corinth and talking about Paul in Corinth and talking about who this guy Sosthenes is. And then we'll get to the big idea and we'll jump into 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Corinth was a capital city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. It was the host of something called the Isthmian Games. You've heard of the Olympic Games. Well, this was sort of an early version of that. The Isthmian Games were held in Corinth. There's a lot of things I'd love to tell you about Corinth because they're things that help you understand this letter, but I'm just boiling it down to this. It was populous, it was wealthy, it was diverse, it was religious. It was immoral. There were hundreds of thousands of people living in Corinth. This was a big, big city, especially by ancient standards. This was a rich city. This was a trading port. There was a lot of business happening here. There was a lot of money here. A lot of that money was tied up in the pagan temples, but it was a wealthy, wealthy city. Very diverse. There were a lot of Romans. There were a lot of Greeks. There were a lot of Jews. There was a diverse population in Corinth. It was a religious city. You live in a city that has a church on every corner. Corinth had a temple on every corner. Temple to this god, a temple to that god, a temple to this deity, a temple to this goddess. Lots and lots of religion. And Corinth was an immoral city. In fact, its immorality was proverbial. And if you had a child who sort of went off and they were living a prodigal life, What you would say in the first century was, they're living like a Corinthian. They're acting like a Corinthian. So that's Corinth. Now let's get Paul in Corinth. Paul planted the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. While he was there, he worked with two people that Jake talked to us about a few weeks ago, Aquila and Priscilla, and he stayed there for approximately 18 months. So you can read about all of this in the book of Acts. Paul showed up in Corinth early 50s A.D., 50-51 A.D. He immediately faced opposition. People opposed him preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when Paul faced opposition, he just sort of packed up, shook the dust off his feet, and went to the next town. But God told Paul, I want you to stay here. I'm not going to remove the opposition 
but I want you to stay because I have something to accomplish in this city. And so he stayed for about a year and a half. The opposition stayed, but Paul stayed. And he planted this church. Eventually he moved on. He planted other churches. And he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth uh, several years later, probably mid-50s A.D. Now, verse 1, there's a man named Sosthenes. I just want to say this uh, at the outset, and I'll let you dig around on your own. This may be the same Sosthenes that's mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verse 12 to 17. In my first draft of this sermon, I told you this story. And I looked at that draft and I said, it's too long. i got to cut something out. So this got cut. So what you should do is go back and read Acts chapter 18. There's a fascinating story of Paul in Corinth and the opposition he faced. And maybe, Bible scholars aren't sure, but maybe the Sosthenes you read about in Acts 18 is the same one who's with Paul uh, listed here in verse 1. Now, let's get to the big idea. 1 Corinthians 1-2, the big idea. Our view of church must be shaped by the Scriptures. The way that we think about church has to be shaped by the Bible. That may seem really obvious to you. It's not obvious to most people in the 21st century. There are a lot of things that shape the way people think about the Bible. One of those is culture. Culture can very easily shape the way that we think about church. Culture is one of those things that you can't ever get away from. When you go to a place like Kenya, you see some things more clearly because the culture is so different. But culture is just the air that you breathe day in and day out. And it's almost impossible that culture doesn't shape the way that we think about church in some way. Another thing that can shape the way that we think about church is tradition. And that could be big T tradition, like in the Roman Catholic Church where they say tradition is equal to Scripture. Or that could be little t tradition in the Baptist sense of we like donuts and coffee on holiday weekend. That's a tradition. All churches have traditions of some kind. If you attend worship here very long, you realize there's sort of an order to the way that we typically do things. Sometimes we go out of order, but usually you know what to expect. And tradition can shape the way that we think about church. You know what else can shape the way that you and I think about church? Our personal experience in a church. That can be a good thing, or that can be a bad thing. You can have positive experiences in a local church, or you can have negative experiences in a local church. And all of these things shape the way that we approach church, culture, tradition, our own experiences. What I want you to see this morning from one verse, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 1, is that the Bible must shape the way that we think about church. The Scriptures have to shape the way that we think about church. Let me tell you a story. The first church that I pastored was North Benson Baptist Church. It's located on Devil's Hollow Road. I don't know a better place to have a church than on the Devil's Hollow Road. We lived on Devil's Hollow Road, closer in towards town, but that's the church. It's a church that is almost now 200 years old. Really, really old church. There's a cemetery. You can see some of the headstones up towards the road, and there are actually people buried in that 
cemetery who fought in the Civil War. So this is an old, old church. They hired me to be their pastor when I was 24 years old. I have no idea why they did that, but they did it. And I walked into this church, and I realized pretty quickly, this is a church, like a lot of churches, wrestling with the question, what is a church? And they're wrestling with things like culture, the culture of rural Kentucky. They're wrestling with things like tradition, how have we always done things. They're wrestling with things like experience, previous experience with the pastor before me, experiences that people had in other churches, and to be fair to North Benson Baptist Church, wrestling with the scriptures. This was a wonderful, wonderful church for me to pastor and for me to sort of learn how to be a pastor and how to preach. My very first Sunday, my very first Sunday, I sat on the front row of the sanctuary up on the right, and I got up and I preached behind the pulpit. That pulpit is really short. I always felt like I was reaching down here to hold on to that pulpit. But I preached from behind the pulpit. I sat down, gave an invitation, did the whole nine yards, everything you normally do. And at the end of the service, I stayed up at the front. And church was dismissed and everybody left. And I thought, well, that was my first Sunday. That was great. And then Monday came. And my dear friend, I mean this in all honesty, my dear friend Alvin Wright, you can't really see in this picture, Alvin's playing guitar in, uh, this is Benson Creek, our bluegrass band. So Alvin Wright, one of our deacons, came by the church office, Brother Landon, I want to visit with you. Okay, great. And he sort of works his way around and eventually he lets me know in a very kind way, I broke two rules on my first Sunday. Rule number one, the pastor at North Benson always sat in one of those wing-back chairs. You can see it up on the left between the piano and Norton Suddeth. That's the pastor's chair. There's another one on the other side of the stage. I guess it's for Jesus. It always stayed empty. But <laughs> they said, that's your chair, and I don't know why you sat on the front row, but you're supposed to sit up there. They just thought I knew that, and I said, well, well okay. What's the other rule I broke? He said, after the service, you just stood at the front of the church. And I said, yeah. And he said, you're supposed to go to the back door, the front door. You're supposed to shake everyone's hand as they leave. You broke two rules. It's your first Sunday. That's two strikes. I said, well, I really don't want to sit on the stage. I really don't want to do it. Well, every pastor here has always done that. And I said, yeah, I don't want to do it. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll go to the back door. After church, I'll stand at the back door. I'll shake hands. It'll be great. So, Sunday number two, I stubbornly sit on the front row. I preach. We go through the service. At the end of the last song, I mosey to the back, and I'm there at the back door, the front door, shaking hands with everybody. People were thrilled to see me back there. They said, oh, this is... This is better. But then, that week, we had our first deacons meeting. And the deacon said, hey, pastor, great job shaking hands. We really like that. Now, about that chair on the stage. And I said, guys, I don't want to sit up there on that. 
on the stage. I don't want to do that. And they said, yeah, but that's what we like. We want you to be up there. And I said, I'll make you a deal. We got two chairs. I'll sit in this one, and the deacon of the week will rotate and sit in that one. And it was quiet. And then they said something I couldn't believe. They said, you know what? I think we could probably change our traditions. We probably need to get with the times. This is not that big of a deal. You just sit right there on the front row, and for the next four years, that's where I stood, right there on the front row. Now, look, that's just a silly example. I could give you others that are more serious and were more challenging to sort through. I could give you some other ones that are funny like that one. But that's an example of a church wrestling with, what does it actually mean to be a church? How do we factor in culture? what everyone else does in rural Kentucky? How do we factor in tradition, what we've always done for some 200 years? How do we factor in experience, what we're used to or what we like or what we don't like? And how do we factor in the Bible? And all I want you to see this morning as we think about 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 is that yes, Tradition's going to impact us. Yes, culture's going to impact us some. Yes, our experience is something we can't get away from. But let's just listen to the Bible. What does the Bible say about the church, and how should that shape the way that we think about the church? So here's the first thing that we learn. What does Paul's opening statement teach us about the church? Number one, the church belongs to God, not man. The church belongs to God, not man. Look at verse 1 and 2. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. That phrase at the beginning of verse 2 the church of God is what Greek scholars call a genitive of possession. The church of God. The church belongs to God. You say, well, who else might it belong to? Well, there was questions about that in Corinth. If you've read this last week, chapter 1, you know that there were some people who were advocating for Paul, who planted this church. This is Paul's church. And there was other people advocating for a guy named Apollos because he was apparently a much better preacher than Paul. This is Apollos' church. We love Paul. We're thankful he started it, but Apollos is our guy. There was other people who said, don't you know who the leader of the apostles is? It's Peter. He's the head. It, Peter is the head of the church. And then there was this group saying, no, Jesus. There was all these questions about who the church belonged to. The church belongs to God. It is the church of God in Corinth. It's not the church of Paul. It's not the church of Apollos. It's not the church of Peter. It's the church of God in Corinth. Sometimes I scratch my bald head and I wonder, why is this so hard for Christians in the United States of America to understand? That the church belongs to God not human beings, not me, not you, not deacons, not elders. It belongs to God. Maybe you heard the story this last week or week before 
came from Florida. Great stories always come from Florida. It was a story of 200 teenagers who planned a party in this house. It wasn't their house. It was a house, $8 million mansion close to the beach in Walton County, Florida. It was put on the market for sale. The owners had moved out of it, but they still had a lot of their stuff in it. These teenagers knew that no one was there, so they planned a party, and 200 of them showed up and had a party in this house. Not surprisingly, lots of stuff went missing. There was a $3,500 purse. It disappeared. There was a football signed by Peyton Manning. It disappeared. There was jewelry that disappeared. In the living room, all the furniture was pushed out of the way, and there was a boxing match. Now, there's a bunch of teenagers, so what did they do when the boxing match broke out? They got their phones, and they hit record, and they took pictures, and they took video, and then what do teenagers, what do all of us do with the pictures and video we take? They posted it on social media, and the cops showed up, And do you know that these teenagers got in trouble? Why did they get in trouble? It's not their house. You don't have any right to be here. These are not your things. This is not your living room. You don't have the right to do whatever you want to do with someone else's house. Guess what? This church does not belong to you. And it does not belong to me. And it does not belong to a committee. And it does not belong to a popular vote of the membership. This church belongs to God. Every church belongs to God, not man. This is so basic. Let's just go back to the basics. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded. He did not suggest. He did not counsel. He did not advise. He commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Question. Why did God have the right to make that command? Answer, it was his garden. Adam belonged to God. God made him. God owns everything. So God gets to set the rules. You say, well, I don't like the rule. God didn't ask you. It's his garden. You're his. He gets to set the rules. He gets to give the commandments. Fast forward to the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, God gives His people ten rules. And you get to Exodus 20 and we say, well, who do you think you are to tell us how to live our lives? Well, this is who God thinks He is. He says to Moses in Exodus 3, I'm going to send you, Moses, to Pharaoh that you may bring who? My people out. Pharaoh said those were his people. They're my slaves. God said to Moses, those are not Pharaoh's people. They're my people. They belong to me. And I'm going to bring them out from Egypt, and then I'm going to give them rules, ten of them, in summary. 
and I'm going to tell them to keep the rules. You say, who, who does God think He is? Believe it or not, He thinks He's God. These are His people. He gets to set the rules. Look at what we read in the New Testament, the book of Acts chapter 20. Paul's talking to the elders at Ephesus. Paul says this, pay careful attention, elders, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Why? Because he obtained it with his own blood. You're doubly God's if you're part of the church. You're His by virtue of creation and you're His by virtue of redemption. He bought you with the blood of His Son. He obtained the church. It's His. You read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul tells the church in Corinth, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is so basic and it's so important. It seems so obvious and so elementary, and I'm telling you that the majority of pastors, the majority of Christians, the majority of churches in the United States don't understand this fundamental truth that the church belongs to God, not man. And the consequence is this. Most churches end up asking the question, who do we want to be as a church and what do we want to do as a church? Those are the wrong questions. Entirely the wrong questions. The question that every church ought to ask is not who do we want to be and what do we want to do, but who has God called us to be and what does God want us to do? You can draw a line right down the middle and you can put every church in the United States on one side of that issue. Is your primary focus on who God has called you to be and what God commands you to do, or is your primary focus on who you want to be and what you want to do? And it all comes back to this very simple point, the church belongs to God, not man. Lesson number two, the church must be marked by holiness. Holiness. Look again at verse 2. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified, you need to circle the word sanctified, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You can circle the word saints. Two words in English, they don't sound exactly connected, but the Greek root of these two words is the same root. So I just put these terms up on the screen for you. The verb is hagiadzo, to sanctify, to make holy, to set something apart for special use. Hagiadzo. The noun or the adjective is hagias, to be holy, to be set apart. The root idea in both of these words is that something has been set apart as distinct, as special, as unique. So we often talk about the Holy Bible, the Holy Book. What we mean is that this book is set apart from all other books. There's lots of books. This is a, a book. This is one of the books that you could read. But it's a holy book. It's different. It's in a class all by itself. 
We talk about the holiness of God. We talked about it in our adult Sunday school time this morning. God being holy, holy, holy. At the root, what we're saying is God is set apart. He's distinct. He is in a class all by Himself. There is God, the Creator, who is holy. And then there's everything else that's been created. And only God is over here in the God category. He's holy. The Bible says that the church is holy, sanctified, set apart, distinct. I realize what the church looks like in real life. We talked in adult Sunday school about what the church in Corinth looked like. It was a mess. But God speaking through Paul says, here's the reality. The church is sanctified, set apart. It's been pulled out of the world and it is now distinct. The idea here sometimes gets a bit confusing because of how we talk about sanctification. Most of the time in the church when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about something called progressive sanctification. And that's certainly a biblical idea. Progressive sanctification is the process where God takes a Christian and the Holy Spirit is at work in us and God makes us more and more and more like Christ over time. It's a process that plays out in the life of every believer. It's progressive sanctification. But by my count, most of the time when the New Testament uses the word sanctification or sanctified, it's actually talking about something called positional sanctification. And it's not saying that we're all perfect and we've all arrived. What it's saying is God in one decisive act has set His people apart. They're distinct. He's pulled them out of the world and He has made them a distinct, unique people. This is an Old Testament idea and it's a New Testament idea. Look at what we read in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Israel, God said, I want you to be set apart and different. Israel pretty much always said, We don't want to be different. We want to be like everyone else. But that wasn't God's intention for them. God's intention is that they be different, distinct, set apart. The New Testament quotes Leviticus 19, 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy, and all your conduct, since, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Look, you can draw a line right down the middle of all the churches in the world, all the churches in the United States for sure, all the churches in Odessa. You can draw a line right down the middle, and you can say, do these people think that they own the church or do they understand that God owns the church? That's a separation in churches. And you can draw a line right down the middle on this issue of understanding holiness. And here's what the line looks like. You draw it right down the middle and you say, on the one hand, there are churches who understand that God has called them to be set apart. To be different. Unique not like the world. And on the other side of that line, there are churches who say, we want to be like the world and we want to be liked 
by the world. For a long time in the United States of America, our culture was such that churches could kind of ride that fence. And you could sort of have one foot in both worlds. And I'm just telling you that that ability to ride the fence is going away fast. And every church is going to have to make a conscious, intentional decision. Do we believe that God owns this church or do we think that we own it? Number one. Number two, are we going to be the kind of people that God has called us to be? Holy, set apart, unique, different, or are we going to slide back into what is very easy and be like the world and hope really hard that the world likes us? Here's a warning from the book of James. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's not just James who offers this warning. John offers this warning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The church belongs to God, not man. The church is called to be holy, to be marked by holiness. Number three, the church calls on the name of Jesus. When we gather together as Christian people, that ought to be the essence of what we do in every Bible study, in every worship service, in every prayer time, is that we call on the name of Jesus. We don't come before God saying, look how good we are. We don't come before God saying, look, look what we have done this last week. Aren't you proud of us? We come before God and we humbly call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What does it mean to call on the name of Jesus? Number one, it means that you call on Jesus for salvation. That you confess your sin before a holy God and you call out to Jesus and you ask for mercy, you ask for grace, you ask for the forgiveness of your sins, not because you deserve it, but because that's who Jesus is, the friend of sinners. Look what we read in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on the name of Jesus for salvation, He will hear you and He will save you. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not, if you confess your sins, Jesus will think about it and get back to you. Not, they'll have a committee meeting in heaven to determine what to do with you. If you confess your sins and you call on the name of Jesus for salvation, you will be saved. Some of you need to do that right now, this morning. You've done a lot of church stuff. 
Or maybe you've done very little church stuff. But you've never actually called on the name of Jesus for salvation. You've never actually confessed your sins before holy, holy, holy God. And you never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins because of what He accomplished on your behalf on the cross. And you need to call on the name of Jesus for salvation today. And if you do that, you will be saved. He is faithful and He is just. And He will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We call on Jesus for salvation, number one. Number two, we call on Jesus as our Lord. As our Lord. Do you notice how many times Paul kept saying this? We're calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it again in verse 7. We're waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, God will sustain us, will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, we've been called into fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul was saying to this church in Corinth is pretty simple and it's pretty direct. Caesar is not Lord. The God or the goddess at that temple on the corner, they are not Lord. The President of the United States, not Lord. doesn't matter what party affiliation he has. The Republicans are not Lord. The Democrats are not Lord. No court, human court, is Lord. You know what the greatest threat to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is in the United States today? It's probably not a politician or some authoritarian person. It's probably ourself. That's what the world tells you day in and day out. You are the ultimate authority in your life. You get to determine who you are. You get to determine what your life's going to be like. You are your own Lord. Paul says, you can swipe all of that nonsense off the table because there is one Lord and His name is Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere in his letter to the Philippians that there is a day coming when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what he says in Philippians 2. God has highly exalted Jesus He's bestowed on Him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day when you will bow before Jesus the King and you will confess that He's the Lord. And if the first time that you do that is on the last day, it will be too late. It will be too late for life. It will be too late for the forgiveness of sins. It will be too late to be called into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus. It will be too late. The church is a people who recognize that God owns us. And God has called us to be different And the only hope that we have is not who we are or not what we can do, but our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we call on Him 
now for salvation and we submit to His Lordship today. There's lots of things that are going to shape the way that you think about church. A lot of those things are unavoidable. Tradition, experience, culture. The challenge this morning is to let the Word of God shape the way that you think about the church. To let the Word of God shape who we are as a church. Let's pray together.